quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A rare event in Russia, Putin taking on the crowds. The lead starts right now. This video just in, Vladimir Putin is greeted by a swarm of supporters during a rare surprise crowd appearance. This comes hours after the reported target of Yevgeny Prigozhin's failed Russian revolt is revealed. And CNN's Erin Burnett visits troops training near the front lines in southern Ukraine. She is live from the ground. Then we're getting our first look at pieces of the destroyed Titan submersible. Giant sections of debris from the sub that imploded near the site of the Titanic wreckage are now above the surface. What those pieces could tell investigators about what went wrong more than two miles underwater. Plus an invisible danger in the water as people head to the ocean. What has killed 11 people in the last two weeks at Gulf Coast beaches, including a former NFL quarterback? Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead and two major developments in the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Investigators from the special counsel's office are in Atlanta today interviewing Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. You might remember this call from January of 2021 when Trump pushed Raffensperger to find the votes needed to flip Georgia from Biden to Trump. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Today's interview in Georgia comes hours after CNN exclusively reported that federal investigators have also spoken to former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, who pushed baseless claims of voter fraud. CNN Sarah Murray starts off our coverage today. Sarah, let's start with the interview down in Georgia. What exactly are investigators hoping to learn from Brad Raffensperger? Well, you know, we don't know exactly what they wanted to talk to Brad Raffensperger about, but you played that call. I mean, Raffensperger was a very public figure that Donald Trump pressured to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election. So, you know, you learn a lot by talking to him, not only about Donald Trump's direct efforts to try to overturn the election results, but also just, frankly, the aftermath that was playing out in Georgia around efforts by Donald Trump and his allies, you know, threats he and his family face, threats election workers face. Those could all be uh, issues that investigators focused on with him. The Secretary of State's office has been pretty tight-lipped about the interview today. They haven't even acknowledged whether it has wrapped up. They did put out a statement, though, saying Georgia is a national leader in election security, integrity, and access. Failed candidates and their enablers have peddled false narratives about our elections for personal gain for a long time, and the voters of Georgia aren't buying it. Sarah, while I have you, you were part of the team that broke this exclusive Rudy Giuliani news as well. 
What do we know about his sit down with federal investigators? Yeah, that's right. My colleague Paula Reed and I learned that Rudy Giuliani recently sat for an interview with federal investigators. And again, we don't know exactly what the topic of that interview was. We know that recently uh, prosecutors have asked other witnesses questions about the attorneys that were around Trump after the 2020 election, including Giuliani, who were spreading these false claims of election frauds. Months and months ago, Giuliani had been subpoenaed for documents related to payments he got around 2020. And of course, we know the feds have also been looking into this kind of fake elector scheme. And Rudy Giuliani was someone who helped to oversee that across seven battleground states. Now, a political advisor for him said it was a voluntary interview and it was conducted in a professional manner. But again, the exact topic investigators focused on, we still don't know. And you'll keep us posted on anything that you do learn about this interview. Sarah Murray, thank you. Also in our Law and Justice lead, Donald Trump is suing former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll after a jury found he sexually abused and defamed her. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me live for more on this. So, Kara, what exactly is Trump claiming in this lawsuit? Hey, Bianca. Yeah, so Trump is suing Carol for defamation. It all relates to statements that she made on CNN the morning after the jury awarded her $5 million and found that Trump had sexually abused her and defamed her when he said that he didn't rape her, she wasn't his type, and that he didn't know who she was. So when she sat down on CNN this morning, Poppy Harlow had asked her about the jury finding not that Trump had raped her, but that he had sexually abused her. Here's what Carol said. This jury found that Trump did not rape you. What about that moment? Robbie can explain the legal. Sure. And, and I want you sure. to. But I just wonder, Eugene, what went through your head when you heard that? Well, I just immediately say in my own head, oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. See, that's my response. So Trump's saying that because Carol said, yes, he did, he's saying that that was a defamatory statement, one made with malice. Now, Carol's lawyers have issued a statement saying in part that Donald Trump, again, argues contrary to both logic and fact that he was exonerated by a jury that found he sexually abused E. Jean Carroll. And you'll remember that this judge is allowing E. Jean Carroll to amend her original lawsuit to include statements that Trump made at the CNN town hall just a few days after this verdict, where he doubled down on these statements the jury found to be defamatory, saying that he didn't rape Carol and he didn't know who she was. So Carol is seeking $10 million in punitive damages in that lawsuit. And the judge has set the trial for that for January. Biana? All right, Kara Scannell, thank you. For more on this, I want to bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed and former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. Good to see you both. Shan, let me start with you. Do you think Trump has a case here? No. Uh, <clears throat> that's a frivolous lawsuit, and uh, it's surprising his lawyers would uh, advise him or let him do that. I mean, it's a very silly distinction. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying, you know, the jury found that I was dumb. She's calling me stupid. I'm not stupid. They said I was dumb. That's a meaningless distinction. Also, it simply opens him up to relitigate the entire sexual abuse issue. And frankly, with the statements he's probably going to make to support this, probably opens him up to more defamation claims, too. Yeah, and yet another case as well, because Paula Trump and his allies are already under investigation in Georgia by the Fulton County District Attorney. How could her investigation overlap with the special counsel's probe? Well, there's definitely some overlap here because in Georgia, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, is looking into efforts by the former president and his allies to try to overturn the election results in that state. 
That same question is just one of the many elements of the special counsel, Jack Smith's investigation into the events in and around January 6th. The federal investigation is far more broad, looking at a much wider cast of characters. Now, there is definitely some overlap in terms of the witnesses. For example, Brad Raffensperger, several other state officials have testified now or spoken to investigators in both investigations. One key difference, though, is if former president or any of his allies are charged at the state level, state convictions are outside the scope of any possible presidential pardons. Shan, we know how powerful for prosecutors the, the, the tool uh, of having audio tape can be. We've talked about it given CNN's exclusive reporting and access to the audio tape uh, of the president two years ago in New Jersey uh, with regards to his um, documents. But in this case, we already know prosecutors have that recording uh, of Trump and Raffensperger. What other possible questions could they have? I think they could certainly be asking him about what his impression was of the sort of leverage. Uh, There's, I think, been reporting before that he felt threatened about it uh, and what the context was. I mean, he obviously feels that their election security was perfectly fine. And I think they want to understand, again, trying to get to Trump's state of mind about this. I mean, he's very much of a no-brainer witness uh, for Smith's team to want to talk to, and uh, it's good that they're talking to him. It it does, again, I think, highlight just how late DOJ generally has been. No fault of Smith's, but they're just off Mm -hmm. to a very late start. And Paula, a lot of news that we've been breaking today, and that includes what we learned about Rudy Giuliani also being interviewed. Is he facing any potential legal problems himself? Look, he certainly has potential exposure here. Uh, We know he was at the center of former President Trump's efforts to try to overturn the election, right? He was filing a lot of things in court, making a lot of public statements uh, in this effort to undermine the credibility of the election and try to flip it in Donald Trump's favor. What's so interesting about this, though, is he was originally subpoenaed late last year in November, before Jack Smith was even appointed. And then once Jack Smith took over the investigation... Giuliani hadn't heard anything for about six months. And for most people in a criminal investigation, if you haven't heard from investigators uh, this far into an investigation, that suggests you could be a target and not just a potential witness. So the fact that he has now sat down for a voluntary interview with investigators is notable. And at this point, though, it's unclear if he will be charged. Shan, do you think Giuliani should be worried about any potential charges? Uh, He certainly should be, and I'm sure that he is, and his team is very aware of that. Uh, I think it's interesting that they're saying it's a voluntary interview. There's an argument that no interviews with the Justice Department are ever truly voluntary. Uh, (laughs) They're really needing to to come in. And certainly, his lawyers would ask if he's a target. DOJ wouldn't want to commit to that right now. But they're probably hoping that he can essentially explain and talk his way out of it. It doesn't have to be a cooperation deal, but they're hoping that by him talking about this, being cooperative, that he'll avoid uh, any real jeopardy. So, Paula, uh, there are a number of investigations that we've covered here. So uh, I do want to ask you specifically about the investigation into the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Where exactly is special counsel Jack Smith on this front? So we always knew this investigation would take longer uh, than the other special counsel investigation into the documents down at Mar-a-Lago because this is far more complicated, right? There are other far more potential crimes here, more potential targets, far more witnesses in a much broader uh, scope of time. 
So it does appear, though, in the past few weeks, we've seen an uptick in activity, a flurry of activity that suggests to us, based on our very close reporting on this investigation, that a charging decision could be coming soon. It will likely be a very busy summer. Uh, Paula, Shan, thank you so much for breaking it all down for us. Well, for the first time, the world is seeing large pieces of the Titan sub-wreckage after the deadly implosion near the Titanic. What it could tell investigators. That's next. Plus, several city skylines obscured by once again that thick, smoky haze. Chicago and Detroit now are home to some of the worst air quality in the world due to those wildfires in Canada. Pieces of the Titan submersible that imploded with five people on board have been retrieved from the ocean floor. It's been more than a week since the sub's ill-fated voyage to the Titanic wreck in the North Atlantic. CNN's Paula Newton is in Ottawa for us. Uh, Paula, tell us more about the pieces that were brought in today and what else officials are looking at as this investigation continues. Yeah, so those pieces of debris you uh, see, Biana, are from Pelagic Research, and they're the ones that operated the remote-operated vehicle near the Titanic wreck. They had first mapped out the debris field. And then what's extraordinary here, Biana, is that they brought up such large pieces of Titan. You can actually see the dome and the viewport, and if you compare what they brought up today to the submersible when it was intact, um, certainly a lot to go by there. We had been told by the U.S. Coast Guard when they first announced this tragedy that that in their term, the area was unforgiving and a very challenging and remote area in which to recover debris. But here we are. We, we do see quite a few pieces uh, of it. I, I have to say, obviously, it's with some disquiet. This is the resting place uh, for five people who tragically lost their lives. And I'm sure while the family members are glad to see that there will be these clues in the investigation, it's obviously causing so much grief again to see all of this play out. I will say, though, this investigation is very important, though, to many people and many countries. Right here in Canada, the Transportation Safety Board trying to determine exactly what went on. They've conducted many interviews. They refuse to say to me today where those pieces of debris are headed, but they will be headed to labs either in the United States or to Canada to be examined further. And I will mention as well, Biana, that obviously the uh, RCMP, the National Police Force here, is determining whether or not a criminal investigation needs to be opened. And again, the more that they can salvage from the deep sea, the more that they will have answers, because the last thing anyone wants here is for this to be a guessing game. So this recovery, an important operation, Biana. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure as, as painful as this may be for the, the victims' families, I'm sure they, they would like to see some of this evidence as well and see where this investigation leads. Paula Newton, thank you. Well, joining us now is Bart Kemper. He's an engineer and was one of the dozen experts in the submersible craft industry who actually raised concerns in 2018 about how OceanGate's Titan vessel was made. He warned back then that the company's experimental approach could result in catastrophic consequences. And, of course, we did see that exact thing play out. Bart, what do you make of the size of the pieces that have been recovered thus far? This is consistent with an implosion. Don't forget, an implosion is it collapses in on itself. It's not an explosion. So to have the living quarters, which is the only part that's supposed to be at one atmosphere or the normal, what we breathe atmosphere, it will collapse inwards on that. But the rest of the items are what we call impotable volumes or volumes that, that are not part of the living space, which would be the batteries, uh, lights, the gas cylinders, uh, those aren't part of the, the one atmosphere 
place where the where the crew would be. So that those would still be intact, as would be the framework that's holding it all together. So I'm not surprised to see large pieces come out. Uh, it's just a question of which pieces are coming up and, of course, what the investigation leads us to. So if you were doing reverse engineering here, as we're seeing and learning more about these pieces, what are some of the questions that you'll be asking? I would want to know the thickness and composition of the carbon fiber composite. It's not just a question of the thickness because it's not one solid piece of carbon fiber. It's a composite or multiple layers of different materials and different, different orientations. That would give it its strength in compression. The reason why I say compression is because it's an external pressure, so it's pushing in on it. If it was uh, an internal pressure, like a, like a medical uh, hyperbaric chamber, it'd be pulling it outwards. The other thing, I similarly would want to look at the dimensions of the window, which is made out of acrylic, as well as the dimensions and thickness of the, the titanium end caps. Another critical part would be how everything comes together, because where the joints come together will be a potential point of failure. So you'd want to have a good examination of that. So hopefully some of these components are still connected to where they're supposed to be, so the investigators will be able to properly assess what was the failure modes and what was the actual cause of the collapse. I know you had warned uh, OceanGate to comply with some of the U.S. regulations for this industry. What kind of changes or safety features need to be made so, so that this doesn't happen again? Or is it as simple as perhaps complying with U.S. regulation could have avoided this from happening? Well, more to the point with this, this is out in international waters. So this would be IMO or the International Marine Organization. That's where the rules would be. However, uh, you, you are correct that this was an experimental, not a tourist sub, not a research sub, but a very much an experimental item that has not been built to an existing codes and standards, such as pressure vessels for human occupancy published in the United States or any of the classification societies, such as American Bureau of Shipping or, or DNB, those are, that's how these other submarines are done. And it's as it's been mentioned before, there are nine or ten other submarines, non-governmental ones, that can reach this depth and have not had a problem. All right, Bart Kemper, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, now we want to go to CNN's Aaron Burnett, who is in eastern Ukraine. Aaron, a lot continues on the war front there. Uh, what are you seeing on the ground today? All right. Well, Biana, tonight we're live in Dnipro, and today we just visited Ukrainian troops. Uh, they're cycling in and out of the front lines here, training near the front lines in southern Ukraine. We're also just getting in tonight some rare video of the Russian President Vladimir Putin greeting a crowd of supporters. He took a surprise stop today, far from Moscow, not his usual. And it comes just days after that failed Russian revolt led by Yevgeny Prigozhin failed. Stick around. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Dnipro, Ukraine tonight. A European intelligence official tells CNN that Russia's own security services, known as the FSB, may have been clued into Wagner's short-lived mutiny before it actually happened, and perhaps, and this is the crucial part, perhaps even wanted it to succeed. This after the Wall Street Journal reported that the Wagner boss and warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin originally plotted to capture two of Russia's top military officials. 
Our chief international security correspondent, Nick Peyton Walsh, is here in Ukraine as well in Kyiv tonight. And Nick, can you tell me more about your reporting on this and, and what it reveals? Because it seems like it could have some significant implications for Putin's grip on power. Yeah, I mean, it is really unclear at this stage, and that's something echoed by the European intelligence official I spoke to. They're still dealing with a fog, but in their assessment so far, there are hints that part of the Russian military or security establishment may have had prior knowledge of what happened over the weekend. Perhaps they wanted to see how it turned out. Perhaps some even wanted it to succeed. And indeed, they do point out how Putin's prestige has taken a significant dent since this occurred. And perhaps that was to the liking of some factions in the sprawling Moscow elite who often fight amongst themselves. The source went on to say how, well, they haven't seen a purge as yet. There are Obviously, indications the turmoil within that elite will continue to roll on. And that sort of tallies with some of the reporting we've been hearing from The New York Times, who have suggested that a key figure uh, in the military elite, uh, Sergei Surovikin, he ran the Ukraine campaign for a while, was kicked out of it, now runs the Air Force. He was seen in a video on Friday telling everybody basically to go home in the early stages of the armed rebellion. Uh, looked a little uncomfortable, hasn't really been seen in public since that. The suggestion by the New York Times was he actually he had prior knowledge of the rebellion. That's early stage information, even the New York Times admit. The Wall Street Journal, they've added to that, saying there were indications, yes, that the Russian security services knew about this in advance, but also, too, that Prigozhin wanted to capture the Russian defence minister and the chief of staff, Valery Gerasimov, uh, during the Prigozhin's initial move. Yeah. That does tally with the fact we knew Shoigu was in Rostov at the start of Friday, but a lot of this early information and something which needs to be eked out. Erin? Uh, fascinating, Nick. I mean, just as we we try to get the peel the layers back of this onion that are so crucial for everyone. I know that you're also learning more about the victims of this horrific strike in Kramatorsk, right? That crowded pizza restaurant, crowded with uh, families and children, civilians. Uh, we now know 11 people were killed, twin girls aged 14 among them. And we're now learning, Nick, this is this is really interesting, that a Russian spy may have scouted the pizzeria before the strike. Yeah, the human face of this repeat Russian indiscriminate attack, it almost seems, on a civilian area in Kramatorsk. Yulia and Ala Aksachenko, 14-year-old twin sisters, who were seen in a picture holding up uh, a sign which talks about the anniversary of the school where they were uh, in Kramatorsk. Uh, increasingly horrifying details, frankly, of just how innocent so many of the people in that pizza restaurant were when these missiles rained down. And now President Zelensky of Ukraine coming forwards and confirming what we heard from Ukrainian security services earlier, uh, that they believe a traitor was passing a video of that pizza restaurant to Russian services. I'm sure that would have provided some possible details as to its location, maybe who was there. We know off-duty servicemen went there as well sometimes, but still, this part of Russia's playbook, frankly, in this war, firing heavy weapons into civilian areas. Sometimes they think they hit what they want. Most of the time, they don't really care who they hit, provided they terrify those who live there. Erin? Yeah, certainly seems in this case it may have been uh, quite purposeful indeed. Thank you very much. Nick, and let's go now to Russia, uh, inside Moscow, where our senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is tonight. And Matthew, the Kremlin put out a video tonight of Putin among a crowd of cheering supporters. Obviously, this is the video they put out, but it's him out and about in some way. It, it seems unusual. How unusual is it?
Um, yeah, he's down south in, in Dagestan, uh, in the Caucasus, um, uh, where he's been visiting today. I mean, it's highly unusual. I mean, they're treating him like a rock star. I mean, look at it. I mean, it's incredible uh, that all these people have turned out. They're all crammed together and they're sort of screaming at him, trying to get, you know, sort of a selfie with him, trying to shake his hand, trying to touch him like he's a rock star, which is extraordinary, given the fact that Vladimir Putin has been the leader of Russia uh, for the past 23 years, you know, so, you know, people are very, very used to him. Um, and you can't help thinking that there's a passing similarity uh, to the scenes of jubilation and the cheers uh, that were witnessed on Sunday in the city of Rostov-on-Don when the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was seen driving out and the cheers of people uh, as they sort of like waved at Wagner soldiers who had taken control of that Russian city. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the Kremlin was absolutely stung by those images of Russian citizens basically cheering on and getting selfies with this, this essentially a rebel group at that point. And this may be um, the Kremlin's way of sort of like clawing back some of its authority and its popularity. Hmm. So, Matthew, we also understand that Russian authorities are finally now confirming that there were Russian military casualties from Saturday's revolt, right? This wasn't some sort of bloodless thing. Uh, what, what are they saying? Well, I mean, look, that confirmation's been, been around for a couple of days in the sense that just yesterday, Vladimir Putin, remember, at a very formal military ceremony in the Kremlin, held a minute silence for those who had been killed uh, by Wagner forces as they mm. attempted that military uprising. But today, the governor of the Ivanova region in, uh, in Russia uh, confirmed that two aircraft had been brought down by Wagner forces during that military uprising, a, an attack helicopter and an Aleutian 22 um, sort of transport signals plane. Didn't confirm how many people were on board, but it's the first uh, time the number of aircraft have been confirmed. Of course, what the Ukrainians say and what uh, military bloggers on Telegram channels say is that Wagner actually shot down far more planes than that, but so far the Kremlin hasn't confirmed it. Matthew, thank you very much. Of course, inside Russia tonight and given the reported plans by Prigozhin for that takeover. So what is the thinking from those now close to the Kremlin? We're going to get potential insight from Russia's former Minister of Foreign Affairs next. I'm Aaron Burnett and we're back with our world lead from eastern Ukraine tonight. And this new video that we're seeing of Putin greeting crowds of supporters in Russia. Now with me now is Andrei... He is the former foreign minister, our minister of foreign affairs of the Russian Federation. He is also the author of The Firebird, The Elusive Fate of Russian Democracy. And I really appreciate your time. I, I want to just start with this new video, right? This is Putin making a surprise appearance to greet uh, Russian people. Uh, understandably, right, he, he wanted this video. This is the video they're putting out. All of this is true. But still, when is the last time you saw Putin do something like this? When... Uh, when I saw him is when he is in trouble. Either he wants to show that he has popular support uh, before, of course, uh, false um, um, rigged uh, elections, but he needs kind of uh, voting and uh, he needs kind of uh, legitimacy from that voting. So that's when he uh, recalls that there are people there 
And when he is scared, he has been scared by the events there. Uh, but those events um, now are going, uh, you know, into the history. And it, it was not an uprising. It was not a putsch. It was just a brawl uh, between the mafia members for the higher position in the organization. Uh, but that was scary because one of those had a, 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 quite an army. So, Andre, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Prigozhin actually planned to capture top Russian military officials. That was his goal. And the way they write it is this. They say, quote, Western officials said they believe the original plot had a good chance of success, but failed after the conspiracy was leaked, forcing Prigozhin to improvise an alternative plan. Andre, do you think Prigozhin's plan would have succeeded if he was going to go in and kidnap or take senior Russian military leaders? You think that that would have worked if, if he had you know, if it didn't leak and he had gone ahead with it? Why not? Uh, I mean, yes, as I said, uh, uh, look at the mafia or, you know, uh, other um, uh, criminal organizations, which they are in Russia, the whole government. Uh, they are fighting for their piece of pie and they always want to be on top. And there was quite a bro uh, between Prigozhin and uh, the, uh, the leadership of the uh, Ministry of Defense. And I believe that many, many uh, military people in Russia are very upset of the war and very upset of the uh, uh, Ukrainian resistance. Um, and uh, they don't uh, respect the leadership of the uh, ministry. But that does not mean that he uh, or they are ready to overthrow Putin uh, because of his false yet existent um, legitimacy in the eyes of uh, many. Do you think that Prigozhin is now safe? I mean, we see others, right? A, a father, his daughter, you know, drew a picture of a Ukrainian flag, right? He gets sentenced immediately to two years in a, pe a penal colony. A Kremlin critic, Ilya Yashin, eight and a half years uh, because he he had a live stream where he um, on the internet live called Putin the worst butcher in this war. Uh, the Vladimir Karamurza, the prominent journalist, 25 years after Russia said he he spread fake news about the military. But Prigozhin, for now, is free. He didn't just criticize Putin's military day in and day out for the past eight months in unbelievable terms. He led an armed rebellion. So is he just going to go free? Yes, uh, Prigozhin uh, is one of the uh, of the organization. He uh, criticized uh, somebody inside the mafia for being for not being effective enough. But he never uh, kind of called seriously. He kind of hinted on on various things. But uh, everybody knew that he was not challenging a political line or challenging uh, uh, in serious uh, terms uh, the war itself. He was a war criminal and he is the war criminal himself. So uh, that's different. Those people could be killed, could be 
a poison uh, and still uh, it's not the end of the story. But in jail there are uh, people which you named and Navalny, of course, to the company, so to say, those are political opponents of the whole organization of the criminal government. They want real change. You know, they are pro-democracy forces and that's Mm -hmm. the opposition. And that's why they are in jail. All right, Andre, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. And earlier today, I visited Ukrainian troops who are uh, preparing for warfare close to the front lines in the south. Uh, In this dense forest, they basically, uh, when they're off the front lines, they're there for two or three days, they train to fight in close quarters combat. Then they go back to the front lines for a few days. They come back to this training right off the front lines. The troops showed us how they camouflage grenades, the tripwires that are just littering the forests uh, near those front lines. Uh, they were talking, showing the grenades, the smoke bombs, even the sniper skills that they're working on. You'll see our whole story close to the front lines tonight at 7 Eastern out front. And now, Biana, back to you in New York. Yeah, fascinating watch. Many of those troops trained by Western allies and militaries at that. Um, Aaron, thank you. Yeah. Well, coming up, the danger you can't see that has claimed the lives of 11 beachgoers on the Gulf Coast, including a former NFL player. Plus, the reasons why the skies are not very friendly for travelers as we head into a busy holiday weekend. If you're breathing air in the U.S., chances are the quality is not so great. More than 120 million people can blame smoke from the Canadian wildfires that has traveled down. Air quality alerts have been issued for Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Delaware, and Maryland. This is officially Canada's worst fire season on record. Also in our national lead today, former NFL quarterback Ryan Mallett is dead in an apparent drowning in Destin, Florida. Officials say the 35-year-old was with a group caught in a rip current when he went under. CNN's Nick Valencia is in Florida with more on this very sad story. So, Nick, Mallett is just the latest in a string of deaths at beaches along the Gulf. That's right. It has been a particularly deadly season when it comes to rip currents here in the Gulf Coast of Florida. Eleven deaths already this year, Biana. Seven of them happening in the last two weeks of June alone, with Panama City Beach seeing really the the most tragedies. And give you a sense of how overwhelmed they are there in Panama City Beach. Just in the last 10 days, they've uh, received 70 calls for distressed swimmers, more than half of them happening on Saturday alone. And it was the Bay County Sheriff's Office that's not taking any chances when it comes to awareness and public awareness, illustrating the impacts of these rip currents, releasing these aerial photos that show just how powerful they are, creating dredges deep underwater in the sand. Uh, Look, you know, we know that this is the time of year that a lot of people come out to the beach, families uh, with their friends, uh, you know, loved ones, people coming out to enjoy these beautiful days. The bottom line, though, is that Florida officials want you to know that it has been a particularly deadly season when it comes to rip currents, and they want you to be aware of that danger before you get in the water. Biana? Yeah, the heat, the the local news there, that is for sure. Nick Valencia in Fort Myers, Florida. Thank you. Well, extreme weather conditions have been one factor in this week's ongoing nationwide travel fiasco that has left hundreds of thousands of airline customers stranded. But as CNN's Pete Muntean reports, weather isn't the only reason for the chaos. 
Flight cancellation fallout is only just beginning, with airlines still recovering after leaving countless passengers in the lurch. This is the worst travel experience in my lifetime. It looks like an apocalypse. It really does. It's certainly been a test of patience. The latest numbers from FlightAware show airlines in the United States have canceled more than 7,000 flights since Saturday. Tuesday night, thunderstorms led to ground stops halting flights to all three of New York's main airports. At LaGuardia, the Federal Aviation Administration warned of gridlock on the ground. We're literally, you know, trying to work you out, out of here with 45 airplanes waiting. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who had his own flight canceled Tuesday, says airlines are improving over last summer when they canceled more than 50,000 flights in total. What's different this year compared to a year ago is that there is more cushion. We're seeing more of the staffing that there needs to be. But clearly there's a long way to go. But United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby is putting the blame on the federal government facing shortages of air traffic controllers. The FAA frankly failed us this weekend, Kirby said in a Monday memo, citing an impact on 150,000 customers. United remains in the top spot for cancellations nationwide for the fifth straight day. Tuesday, the carrier called for its own ground stop for its flights bound to its hub in Newark. It is ridiculous to say that this is only the FAA. Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants insists United needs to look at its own problems. Flight attendants have waited on hold with the airline for hours to get their flight assignments. United could have planned for over a year to avoid this chaos that we're seeing right now. Now, the worry is whether airlines can handle the July 4th holiday rush with the threat of more storms looming. The Transportation Security Administration is expecting 2.8 million people at airports nationwide this Friday, the highest number since 2019. Expect delays, expect cancellations. Uh, Get to the airport early. We're also hearing from passengers who have been waiting on hold for hours to try and find a new flight. Some have not been able to find a seat until Monday. It has been a really taxing run for passengers nationwide. Making matters worse today, in Charlotte, a Delta flight landed with the nose landing gear up. Thankfully, nobody on board that flight was hurt, but one of four runways in Charlotte will stay closed until tomorrow afternoon while crews work to clear that plane. Bianca. Oh, boy, just adding to the nationwide nightmare there for travelers. Pete Muntean, thank you. Well, coming up, Madonna forced to postpone her world tour because of a health scare. We'll tell you what landed her in the ICU. But first, Wolf Blitzer is here with a look at what's coming up next in the Situation Room. I know you're going to continue to focus on what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Among other things, we certainly are, Bianca. I'll be joined, by the way, by two guests with very important insight into the Russia mutiny, its impact on the Kremlin and the war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, and the retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's a veteran of the National Security Council with expertise on Ukraine and Russia. All that and a lot more coming up right at the top of the hour, right here in the situation. In our pop lead, Madonna is taking a break from her world tour that was scheduled to start next month due to a serious health scare. In an Instagram post, Madonna's longtime manager confirmed that the pop singer is recovering from a serious bacterial infection, which landed her in the intensive care unit for several days. The post goes on to say that Madonna's health is improving and she is expected to make a full recovery, but she is still under the care of doctors. 
The 64-year-old Grammy winner was due to launch her celebration tour, traveling to 43 cities around the world. And we do wish her a speedy recovery. Thank you so much for watching, everyone. I'm Bianca Goldriga in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.